Today's Hope FM Breakfast Show is brought to you by Chester Pierce Funeral Service. For individual support as unique as your loved one, visit chesterpierce.com. Now, individual listeners to Hope FM, particularly on a Sunday, will well, certainly know the voice and and no doubt the name of Alan Claridge. Uh, Alan has been a presenter here on Hope FM for many, many years, actually. Uh, but one of the things that maybe you don't know about him is that he is an author in his own right. And he's just got a brand new book coming out. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Blair. Well, well thank you for getting up early and coming on the breakfast show with Ian. Early is midday. Indeed. Well, when did you start? I mean, I know this is you've got a brand new book. Right? We're going to be talking about that. But but when did you get you know first start writing and get the inspiration? Um, well, many years ago now, I did a couple of book at bedtimes that were broadcast back oh some forty years ago, just as a to see what happened and sent them off. And I was so surprised, I got a check back saying they'd been broadcast. So was that, was that with the Beeb? That- no, it was with LBC at the time in London, mm-hmm. and uh, it was rather nice. They used to do this bedtime story. And um, I suppose really that was my start in writing because it was a hobby in any case, mm. and still is. And what what did you write about? I mean, was it was it fiction? Um, it was Ghost good. It was humour of because I travelled in those days, and I travelled to Wales, Ireland, and Scotland. I decided to write a trilogy, and um, one was called Scotland Be Brave, and the Welsh one was I've forgotten the name of that by now, and the Irish one. Well, it it was full of humour and. Very acceptable at the time. I'm afraid I've lost two of the scripts, or one of the scripts, actually. I've still got two of them now, and uh, I, I read them. Perhaps these days you might not be able to use them because it talks about uh, Scottish, Irish, and uh, Welsh. So I don't know. Today you've got to be much more careful when you're writing about things. Well, I suppose you have to be a little bit politically correct. Although, mind you, there's a lot of people who, who, who write and do things, and they're not at all politically correct. No, they? they're definitely so. not. <laughs> it's, it's inspiration because you I mean we've all heard about the the writer's block you know where you you maybe fix a, a period of time where you're going to write your next book or your article but obviously if you get writer's block in the middle of that then you're, you're uh, a bit stuffed aren't i you? think that's quite usual what happens when i started writing longer books i i wrote one which hope's done many times and even read it at the program called yorgi that was a fairly short one for modern books not not short in itself it was 200 pages but uh, it when i was writing that uh, it, it was a fictional story based on uh, yorgi vins and uh, I found that quite easy, but I then went on to 400-page novels, and I did a trilogy of those with my work in Africa and such like, built as an uh, adventure story. And I'd perhaps write a couple of chapters, and then, yes, it would stop, and I'd have a break. And then I had to write it and then read it again, because what happens when you're writing a long book, you forget the names of the characters... (laughs) <laughs> and it's so easy to do it. And as you get a bit older, it gets worse. You forget them and you start off perhaps calling somebody George at the beginning and Raymond halfway through the book. But so the, when you're writing fiction, do, yeah. do you start with the with the end in view? In, in other words, no. so you don't even I know. I don't even know the end when I'm writing it. I, I start and um, 
I, I have an idea in my mind of an adventure story. When I was at school, I was always in trouble for dreaming at school. And it was because I had ideas. My mother was like that as well. She used to write, never did any printed stuff, but it, it was just, it, it was lovely. You could lose yourself in it. And uh, I always used to enjoy it when I used to go away quietly and just be able to sit there and go through a story and develop it, change it and hopefully make it interesting for other people to read. Mm. Now, those, those early days, you know, you said you, you wrote sort of for, for broadcast effectively. Mm. And, got, and then did that then inspire you then to, uh, to write a book? I don't think it did in those days because I was far too busy. I was with a company in London and travelling perhaps 2,000 miles a week going round to various uh, places that had problems because I dealt with water problems and then it went abroad and such like. But uh, then I had times when I perhaps spent some time in, a, in an area. Then I started writing down and typewriter and we, we had typists in the company and my first ones, I used the typists of the company to type my books up. But of course now it's computers and it's so much easier. Absolutely. Well, in fact, even now you can just dictate to the computer and it'll it'll print, you know, it'll type for you. One of these, well, it these doesn't always recognise the Dorset accent, but uh, yeah, we try. You think you've got troubles? What about an Irish accent? <laughs> ah, well. <laughs> <laughs> now, there may be people listening, uh, Alan, and I mean, we're going to talk about your new book, obviously, and, and obviously your adventures in Zimbabwe. Uh, but um, but for people listening, you know, who uh, maybe, I mean, for example, Ian, you hear, you know, uh, mm. I don't know whether you, he, he has uh, done... He's got his doctorate, you know, as his nice doctor, Ian, you know. Mm. But uh, but Ian has written, uh, well, his thesis was basically comparing, well, you say, Ian, it was comparing. It was a comparison between uh, religious broadcasting in the United States and the United Kingdom, oh. which is very different indeed um, uh, over many years. Um, really from 1921 to 1995, which was probably the, the main landmark in the UK in terms of uh, starting with Christian broadcasting. So, yeah, it was quite a complex story uh, um, and he's been turned into a book, basically. Mm. But it's an academic book. Yeah. Uh, it's not a fictional book yeah. uh, but uh, there is a lot of drama in it though from things yes. that have happened all those years <laughs> in religious yeah. broadcasting yes and I'm in it Alan. Yes, are you? he's in I it am. yes, yes. Yeah. But, the, but the interesting thing well, what I was going to say was and I guess both of you have had this experience the whole challenge of getting your book published it's quite a it's quite a minefield, isn't it? Because I know that you can you can choose, and many people do to to self publish, mm. but it's quite expensive. But but I guess also to get the attention of a publishing company must be equally difficult. Extremely difficult. My Yorgi was a publishing company, but unfortunately they've gone out of business now with all the manuscripts and everything. All I've got is copies of the book and a couple of those left. Mm. So did they did they take the copyright? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But every other one I've done, I've taken my own copyright because you you can publish, um, you can choose to self-publish and sometimes these days it seems to be better that way. Um, other times you, you go to a publisher and you get very little money um, unless you're a prolific writer and you're selling hundreds of thousands of copies of books. My... Um, Last three on the novels, I just got a penny a copy. 
for the commission. And I, I was saying that perhaps I get £40 in a month. Well, that's yeah. an awful lot of penny coffees that yeah. have gone out. So your books are selling, Alan? Oh, they're selling, what? yes. And you can look them up in different parts of the world. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, Kindle is one of the things now, and I've got most of mine, the modern ones, on Kindle. I mean, it's great, isn't it, that people are still reading books? Because we have all this technology, and of course mm. we have audio books, don't we? Yeah, I, I love audio books. I love audio books because too. I'm I'm driving along in the car, and then yes. I, or even you know go for a nice walk, and you you yes. know you, you, with the, yes. I, I listen to my wife's shopping. I've sat with a dog in the car. Yeah, so I'll I'll put on something like Dad's Army, a bit light, or else I'm listening yeah. to an adventure story. So have you ventured into your books being audio books? No. No, but I'll tell you one thing that happens now, which is quite interesting. If you have a Kindle book and you have Lexa, it will read it to you. Oh, that's amazing, Alexa, yeah. Alexa, yeah. So you say, Alexa, read my latest book or something, and it'll do it. Mind you, it doesn't read it like a, a person does, but it's clear enough to hear the story. And after you've got used to the parts which it doesn't put any expression in, the expressive voice, but is it stops at the wrong place, you get used to it. Sure. Hope FM, Faith-Filled Radio. Well, that's the amazing Stuart Town and there with his version, of course, of The Lord's My Shepherd. If you're a regular listener to Alan's programme on a Sunday morning, which airs uh, just after Community Now, at 10 o'clock you start. Uh, yes. And, uh, and of course, it's a popular... Pre- you were t- telling me you get quite a lot of feedback from the programme. Oh, yes, a lot of feedback. And it's lovely to hear from the listeners because it's encouraging... And also, I know the type of music that people like because of it. Now, Alan, let's uh, change tack a little bit. We're going to talk about your brand new book, which is aptly titled Living Water to a Thirsty Land. But maybe to put it in context, we better sort of uh, tell people you know, a, bit, a bit about your professional career, because obviously that's what eventually took you to to Africa yes. and other parts. Yes. So, so you trained as a, 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 as a, as a plumber? As a plumber, yes, in Corfmellon. And I, I did, well, seven years of that and got my qualifications, if you can call it that these days. You did an apprenticeship, bills. effectively. Oh, I did. It was yeah. an apprenticeship. Yeah. Oh, yes. I had to sign the indentures over a stamp in those days. You couldn't break that without going to court. It was very, very strict. It was in the 50s, of course. And at the end of that, I became a waterboard inspector for what was Paul and East Dorset Waterboard in the town of Strumston Newton which for me was a bit difficult because as a, a, quite a young person, I had so many relatives lived in that area that I was watched. And I was quite glad to get back to Wimborne mm. and uh, take up a local job after a while until one day I was in um, Christchurch Hospital working because I worked for Bournemouth Corporation for some time as a foreman on their central heating side. And uh, I saw an advertisement in the Daily Mirror in the, and it was for a service engineer for a firm called Permutit Water Softeners. And so I applied and didn't hear anything for some weeks and then got called up to the Dolphin Hotel in Southampton, which will always be in my mind, and given an interview, sent to uh, London. I got the job. They said, we're going to do training. So I went up there. The training lasted for two hours because <laughs> they were too busy and the man was off sick. And they sent me out to repair these water softeners, which I'd never seen before. 
but uh, I managed to get over it. But anyhow, all laughing aside, it it took me up in in my work because the company were pleased and they sent me to medical school in Liverpool and at the time kidney dialysis was taken off they trained me in technology or the Liverpool University and Cardiff University I did both we trained and I became the technical advisor for renal dialysis water treatment for the company. And in the end, I went to the government places on trials. It was a wonderful opening. But the miracle, which is in the book, says that one day I was told I was going to be made redundant from my company because they were going to give up the medical side. And it was depressing i was driving down from scotland at the time and i stopped at the motorway there was a chap that looked equally miserable i don't know if i did look miserable i don't usually but <laughs> he looked miserable and i said what's wrong he said he said i don't know what we're going to do i said what's that he said i'm with culligan and he said our medical advisor on renal dialysis has gone on the bottle and we've had to get rid of him and i said what he said what do you do i said well Ditto. That's my, not the bottle. <laughs> Ditto. That's my <laughs> job. And uh, within two days, I was working for Culligan as their kidney dialyst. And then they said to me, we went in one day, we want you to go to Harare. Well, it was the year of independence. None of us knew where Harare was. <laughs> so I remember the treasurer buying a ticket for me and uh, business class, nothing like today's business class, but uh, to go to, to Zimbabwe. So I went out for a week to Zimbabwe to meet the people out there and it all kicked off from then. Now, of course, uh, the one thing I have to get you on community now, Alan, you know, so we can do a lot more uh, on this. But I mean, obviously, faith plays a very central part because another aspect is is that you're an, an ordained minister yes um and uh, but but clearly your faith came into play as well because you were saying in initially i guess in zimbabwe you know that there was great need out there but tell us a wee bit more about how, how you made the connection well i made the connection when i went over there and the first thing i did um, I, I had to go to get, uh, to a show to put a show on and nothing turned up for the show so I had plenty of freedom to go round and see the locality and I was taken round by local people I had a car there my company owned a car hire business Culligan did in, in Zimbabwe so it was useful we went around and I think God spoke to me while I was there and thought I've got to do something for these people. They haven't got proper water conditions, sanitization, and we could, or I could help them if I'm given the opportunity. And I came back to the UK because I had a holiday due and sent it to the company. And the week after, they sent me back out again for three months. This is 37 years ago, so it's a long time ago. And God was certainly in it because when I was about eight or nine years old, I was in Sunday school and I felt that I was called to be a missionary And at that age and it had always been in my mind to be able to do something for God and everything came about not by chance, by vision and by what God had proposed for us that, that took me out there and well it, it developed into something far bigger than I could ever have imagined because when I came back the company weren't very keen on me going out to Zimbabwe to stay there and I thought well it's sad what can I do in this country and we had a medical conference in Budapest and I, I went to this because it was on dialysis 
And when I was there, the present Minister of Health of Zimbabwe, was a young man then, he wasn't even a doctor then, came up to me, he said, we need you to look after a special person. And I thought, well, okay, what's this? So I said to the company, there might be an opportunity for your business over there, will you send me? So I went and it turned out that it was to see Mrs. Mugabe, President Mugabe's wife, who was a lovely Christian. Mm. She really was. And uh, I went to the house to set up her kidney unit. Um, Just one of the funny stories that happened there was uh, I I felt they were very rude because Mugabe, Mr. Mugabe, didn't speak. And uh, she didn't say anything either. And I'm I'm there setting all these units up, blood tests and everything else. Else. And I said to the nurse in charge, I said, they're not very friendly. About five minutes later, Mrs. Mugabe comes in on her knees, bowing her head and saying, Mr. Claridge, I am so sorry. I am so remiss. Would you come to dinner with Bob and myself tonight? I thought, oh, Bob? Yeah, well, I, I didn't go. I didn't go for dinner with Bob. And uh, I did have a meal there, but... It was just wonderful. And after that, of course, I got to know them. I got to know the family, actually. And it was quite an opportunity um, to see God working there. And those days, he wasn't such a tyrant. He really wasn't. It was a different Different kettle of fish. Yeah. Yeah. But it was an opportunity that set me up in Africa. But I guess that did open the door because obviously you saw the need, but having, you know, approval at the highest level Mm. of government, you know, in in the sense, then must have opened lots of other doors to you. Well, it did, because at that time there was a war going on in Mozambique. Samora Michel died in an air crash and the two parties, warring parties, were fighting together. And there was a missionary in in Harare and he said, you couldn't come down at the weekend and to Mozambique and have a look at our missionary house to put water on. Well, he had to drive, or we had to drive down the most dangerous road in Africa at that time, the Baira Corridor. And we went down the Baira Corridor, and he drove so fast, it frightened me to death. I was mind-watched, and I didn't even know what a mine looked like. We went down there, and the missionary house was falling apart. It was in the sea, and I thought, what a waste of money. <laughs> but I walked to the hospital, as I always went to hospitals because of my job, and I looked there, and I saw what must have been hundreds and hundreds of people queuing with rusty tins trying to get drips of water from a tap and i heard that there were thousands of people dying a week for water to water problems and i said to the matron who'd just become a christian i said to her i will get water on for you and then i realized what i said i came back to england I prayed and I I wrote to all the, because I've always lived in this area when I've been here, and I wrote to all the churches and organisations and asked for five pounds. And I got enough money to buy a water purification, very basic one in Bristol, to go there. And also to buy the bugs that clean the water Mm. and to buy all that. Then it was how to get it there. So (laughs) somebody said to me, go to Tear Fund and do it. And Tear Fund, we had to take the stuff to. We took it there. And um, with uh, they said to me, we don't know when it will arrive. All the equipment, it could be months. And then I went back to Zimbabwe, prayed, what would God do about it? And it's all in this book. It talks about it. So this book is really 
back-to-back stories mm. and, and a, a telling a telling a, a, about how the work developed. And, of course, it's still going. I um, mean, yes. I mean, because you, you were making regular trips. Yes, until the pandemic. Yeah, and uh, and I guess that now that things are lifting a little bit, are you hoping that you'll be able to reinstate those? Well, visits? I hope so. They've, this week they've had to shut down a number of the cities again, so I'm really not sure. The problem is there's no money there. Mm-hmm. And the, the last story in the book is really... Uh, on this occasion, one of the most dangerous stories at the time because I went out there with a, a colleague who drives me around. His name's Austin, and he came out with me, and he'd never seen trouble. And this time, there there was trouble in Bulawayo, which is normally a quiet city, and around because, well, there they there was a lot of problems. And when I arrived, we went to a football stadium or buy it was by the hospital and saw these wagons i thought whatever are they didn't realize they were water cannon i've never seen water cannon on me on television <laughs> and i thought well they are, must have rough football matches to have that <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> of course it wasn't it was trouble and they shut the city down well alan thanks for joining me i mm. i will have to get you back on because there's so much more to share uh, uh, and yes. tell but if you want to get a copy of this book now keith jones is talking keith jones has got them uh, and uh, the book is called living water to a thirsty land yes and of course it's alan claridge is is is, mm. is the author uh, what encouragement would you give folk to go out and get a hold of this book Alan. Can buy, they can buy it also on Amazon can't they yes they can buy the black and white copies coloured copy in uh, in Keith Jones um, no it's most certainly and they can get it on Kindle as well of course yep um, the thing I would say is I believe it would encourage faith because well, as I said the Mozambique question came into it actually God spoke to me told me the day it was arriving the equipment got me on a hitchhiking on a plane and I ended up the day it arrived in Mozambique. But it's all in the book, and it's what God did. And, of course, even to 18 months ago when I was there with being trapped in Victoria Falls when it was a shutdown and very dangerous, God's there. And it encourages people that are going through troubles and tribulations at the moment to to realise that there is a God that cares for us. He doesn't stop us from getting in dangerous places, but when we're there, he's there to lift us up and to save us. And faith comes into it. For more inspirational interviews, podcasts and Hope FM best bits, visit hopefm.com forward slash listen again.